sometimes things end up different from what you expected. Sometimes they don't even start where you expect. So today, just to confuse you, we're starting here. This is Ginetta's Ice Cream Parlour in St Andrews. One of the best places to get ice cream that I know of in the world. 40-something varieties. I first went there when we first had a holiday in St Andrews when I was about 11. That's a couple of years ago now. Um, we've taken our kids there. We've taken our grandchildren. It's a great place to go. But the first time, or one of the first times that we took our children, who are now in their 40s by the way, to Ginetta's, they got their ice cream cones. Ali, as usual, had his mint choc chip. He was dead set on mint choc chip in those days. So we went outside, and he was really looking forward to having his ice cream. And then my daughter, Alison, who has a certain problem with spatial awareness, unless she's on a stage, turned around beautifully into the ice cream, which went on the pavement. So you can imagine the situation. Ali's upset. Alison, who always had a thing about looking after other people, was trying to comfort him. Stuart, Alistair's brother, did his usual thing and said a few things that were designed to get Alistair wound up even more. <laughs> so the day ended up rather differently from what it was supposed to. Well, things don't always end up the way we expect. Caiaphas, Annas, the chief priests, the, the Pharisees, Pilate, the Romans, they all thought that the death of Jesus on the cross was the end of it. But on the third day, Easter day, Jesus' resurrection turned the whole story in its head and they were powerless to do anything about it. God had taken control once more and puny earthly rulers had no answer. Well, we all know the story, the facts of Jesus' crucifixion, death and burial, and then his resurrection, or I hope we do. But how many of us could say what happened next after the resurrection, and when? In Luke's Gospel, it's the story of Jesus being seen by the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But we're doing the lectionary this year, and it's not Luke that we're looking at. And in John's Gospel, that story's missing. And the terms of the timing, the answers in verse 19 of our reading, on the evening of that first day of the week, that means the evening after Mary had gone to the tomb that morning. It goes on, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, more than just the apostles, but crucially not including Thomas for some reason. Clearly they were frightened men, probably still uncertain how to react to Christ's death. Remember, they hadn't managed to cope with his words about rising from the dead, considered nonsense by many, or truly believed what they'd been told about the tomb by the woman. Who could trust what women said? Or by Peter and John. And there was still the fear that the Jewish authorities might come after them to kill them. Robbing a grave was a capital offence. And into this locked room, Jesus came and stood among them. In Luke 24, verse 37, he says, they thought they were seeing a ghost. But was he a ghost? How did he get in? What's he going to say to us after we all fled from the scene when he was arrested and spent all our time in hiding? 
But Jesus simply says, peace be with you. The usual Hebrew greeting, no censure or rebuke. He calmed their fears, and in case they thought they were seeing a ghost, he showed them his hands and his side. And they were overjoyed. For them, it was not enough to hear the testimony of the woman or Peter and John. They had to meet the risen Lord for themselves, not at a tomb or a garden, but in a room with locked doors. The next part of our reading, verses 21 to 23, is similar in some respects to his commission to the disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel and the events of Pentecost. Peace be with you, says Jesus again. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This time, the peace be with you is the Master's own peace. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. But how come? Only God can forgive sins. But now he's saying that collectively, as God's people here on earth, they can exercise that forgiveness as his representatives on earth. And by what Jesus had done on the cross, anyone believing in him could be forgiven. Verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, is significant for us too. Jesus sends out his deeply flawed disciples to be his witnesses. He doesn't wait until we're perfect, but works with us just as we are, shaping and changing us as we relate to him. John's Gospel often speaks of Jesus being sent into the world to do his Father's will, to speak his words, to perform his works and to bring salvation. This is what we too are sent out to do. It's also the manner in which Jesus was sent that is important. As the message puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. We too are called to be with people, empowered and equipped by the Holy Spirit and sharing Jesus. Thomas, however, was not convinced when the other disciples told him what they had seen and heard. He had a hard-headed scepticism. Well did he deserve the name history has given him, doubting Thomas. But to the disciples he was simply Thomas or Didymus. Thomas being derived from the Hebrew and Didymus from the Greek, both meaning twin. Whose twin we aren't told. But who exactly was this Thomas? He's one of the apostles that we know relatively little about. Mentioned first in the list of the twelve apostles, then in the story of Lazarus, as when Jesus says, let us go to him eventually, where the Jews had earlier tried to stone Jesus. And Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, let us go also, that we may die with him. Now, I'm not sure if there's ever sarcasm in the Bible, but I must admit that when I had read this passage, I assumed Thomas was speaking sarcastically although some commentaries I've looked at suggest otherwise. The other time that Thomas is mentioned in the Bible, nearly always in John's Gospel, is in chapter 14 of John, after 
and before two very well-known parts of Scripture. Let me read the early part of John 14 to you, verses 1 to 6. You'll have heard it at funerals. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Thomas appears to have been something of a spokesperson for the disciples, much less than Peter, but he seems to often ask astute questions that the others don't. So I think it's with this background that we should approach the next part of today's message. Because in response to the other disciples telling him, we've seen the Lord, he says, unless I, put the, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. So that's that then. He made his position fairly clear. A week later, we have the same scenario as the first time. The disciples are in the same house with the doors locked. So much for the Holy Spirit at that time, giving them boldness and freedom from here. And Jesus again appears among them. The same greeting, peace be with you. And then he repeats Thomas's words back to him. Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now it doesn't actually say in either part of the passage that the disciples or Thomas did touch him, but it is implied. And Thomas responds with the strongest affirmation of Jesus yet. My Lord and my God. The first time in John's gospel that any of the disciples acknowledged Jesus as God. Doubts are something we all have to live with, whether on a spiritual level or not. Doubts about our health, our family, how we're going to cope, about money. Doubts are something we all have to live with and cope with, whether minor or major. And this is true of our faith as much as anything else. In part, this is why the creeds were written. So the essential truths of the gospel were laid out in unmistakable form. As long as you believe them, there is still a certain level of doubt that you're alive, uh, allowed without taking an impossible position. And Jesus didn't condemn Thomas outright for his honest doubts. He greets him with the peace. Then he shows him what he asked to see. And this response from Thomas is the strongest statement of faith from the disciples up to that point. Thomas is one of my heroes in the Bible. He's been stuck with the name Thomas the Doubter or Doubting Thomas. But I think a more appropriate name might be Thomas the Questioner. When I was younger and less wise, assuming you think I'm wise at all now, 
I had no doubts about my faith. The Bible reigned supreme. I was happy to accept everything I read in the Bible without questioning any of it. That's fine, but later I realised that that also meant that I struggled if anyone asked me about their doubts or concerns. I often didn't have an answer for them as I hadn't thought things through for myself, alone or with others. And that's where I find our focus group so helpful. For with a small group of people you get to know well, you can open up about many things you don't quite understand. And by seeing other people's points of view, understand better where people sometimes find difficulties, where you don't. It's a mutual self-help thing. It's vital that we provide space for people to explore their faith and grapple with the hard questions without being judged because they query beliefs we hold dear. God is big enough and generous enough to handle our doubts, as this incident with Thomas demonstrates. And it is by facing them and bringing them to Jesus that we will be able to trust even where we don't understand. So what things cause us to doubt our faith? It might be uncertainty about whether there really is a God, whether there is a Father. With all the scientific knowledge we have now, it might be doubts about whether there really was a creation, although the theory of evolution is just that, a theory, and one which Charles Darwin himself turned his back on later in life. I'm not sure the creation happened exactly as we read in Genesis 1 and 2, but my knowledge of human life the human body, genetics, leads me to the unshakable conclusion that we were created. It, we didn't just happen by chance. Our doubts might be something to do with Jesus' life, teachings, death or resurrection. It might be because we prayed for something and it doesn't appear as if anyone really listened. But we need to remember in that situation that although God hears our prayer, his priorities, his viewpoint may be different from ours. Specifically, when we pray for someone to be healed or saved from death, that isn't always possible. And indeed, maybe it's just as well, as the earth would have been overcrowded long before we were born. But at this Easter time, we can be convinced that Jesus really was the Son of God and that his death and resurrection really did take place. First of all, his death. There were too many witnesses to Jesus' death to doubt it. Pilate had ordered that those crucified had to have their legs broken so they would die before the Sabbath and keep the Roman authorities right with the Jews. But the centurion, a man well used to seeing crucifixion and death, found that Jesus was surprisingly already dead. And just to make sure, he thrust a spear into his side and blood and water came out, a fatal blow if nothing else had been. And the body was left in the tomb for a long time. What about the resurrection? Various doubts have been raised about that. What if the disciples had stolen and hidden the body? Well, it wasn't a small stone that covered the tomb, as Gordon McCracken showed us last week. And there were guards. Where did they put the body? Later they were persecuted and killed for preaching about the resurrection. 
They could have saved themselves just by producing the body, but they didn't. They were convinced of the truth. What about the Roman authorities or the Pharisees and priests? What did they have to gain by moving the body? Again, all the clamour about Jesus' resurrection would have died down just by producing the body. They couldn't. What about the testimony, the statements of the people who had seen Jesus? We take as read what we see in the papers or the television or on our mobile phones, but they didn't have that in those days. Nevertheless, if we challenged what had happened in Parliament in Westminster, at the least there might be 650 MPs who could claim what had happened. Now the resurrection accounts say that a number not far off that actually saw Jesus after his death. So there were Mary Magdalene and the other woman at the tomb, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the disciples in the locked room twice, the apostles at Galilee, at the Ascension, and at various times in between. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul notes that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. And finally, he appeared to Paul. Then there are the accounts of what Jesus looked like after he was raised to life. Here we have to thank Thomas for convincing us that there really were the marks of the nails and wounds to see and feel. Luke 24:43 tells us that Jesus ate some fish. And remember too the words of verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them. Dead bodies don't eat and breathe. Furthermore, we have to take into account the change in first the apostles, then in the vast number who became Christians when the message was first proclaimed, and finally, in anyone who gives their life to Christ now. These are life-changing events, and it's difficult to see how they could have happened if all that is told in the Bible concerning these events wasn't true. So, doubts are allowed but cling to the central truths of our faith. And thanks to Thomas, some of these are even more certain than they might have been. Remember too that those who doubt and come to certainty in their faith are even more resolute in knowing what they believe. As Jesus says in verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed what some have called the ultimate or greatest beatitude. There's another unexpected end to our reading. For most scholars accept that when originally written, chapter 20 of John's Gospel was the end of the Gospel. Verses 30 and 31, as Janice read, are headed the purpose of John's Gospel. And reading them, you will see why many believe that the Gospel originally finished there. His whole gospel from chapter 1 was written to show Jesus' messiahship as the Son of God. John says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, both before and after the resurrection. And what he has recorded is there, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
His account of Jesus' words and deeds is selective. But have faith in him and have eternal life. In the lectionary that we're using, this passage in John was coupled with a passage from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9, which seems as fitting into our sermon today. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, sorry, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. I felt that the only appropriate response to our sermon today was that we should stand now and say the words of the Apostles' Creed together.